Hey gang, Josh here. I'm talking with Holly Jean Buck, who is the author of After Geoengineering, published by Verso in 2019. This is part of the expanded program for my exhibition Left Futures that is now on view through March 12th with Baz Fisher Invitational in Miami. You can check the show notes for more info. Well, this book is about, I mean, the simplest, you know, phrase, technological interventions in the climate system, right? So it starts out, you know, climate change is really bad. We all know that. What happens when we hit this point of desperation where we're kind of grasping at different ideas? How do we evaluate them? What's, you know, climate grift versus something that could actually work and should be done? And so, you know, first we wander in that book through different carbon removal methods. So it's important to know that that at this point, to make these kind of temperature targets like 1.5 degrees warming above pre-industrial, that's Celsius, or even two degrees, we need to remove massive amounts of carbon from the atmosphere and put it somewhere, right? So where do you put it? Do you turn it into rock? Do you... Um, put it in the oceans, right? I mean, it's already going into the oceans. And, you know, can we inject it underground or store it in plants or whatever to, to make a difference in the global climate system? So I spend a bunch of chapters on that. And then I look at solar geoengineering or solar radiation management or sunlight reflection methods, whatever you want to call them, it keeps changing. It's probably going to change again by the end of the year. Um, what people want to call this, but basically blocking some fraction of incoming sunlight um, and reflecting it back out in the space, which would cool the earth. And kind of what's the best case scenario for doing that? What's the worst case? How would we ever make a decision? Who is we to make that decision? All of that stuff is in the book. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a heavy lift and it's exhaustive as well. It really feels like there is no avenue left unexplored. Well, some people would say, well, you didn't explore degrowth. You didn't explore, you know, stopping fossil fuels. I don't know, but my new book that, um, you know, I'm just in the revision process that'll be out uh, this autumn is about how we end fossil fuels. So if you really missed that, it's it's coming. (laughs) If I could summarize the conversations we've had in the reading group, The question that is most prevalent in my mind is this Jameson, Zizek, Fisher, maybe infamous question by now, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Does that analogy make sense that it was it was forcing you to confront these questions after passing all these critical thresholds? Yeah, (laughs) I think that's a good analogy. I mean, I was trying to look systematically, you know, at all these things we hear we should do in kind of a slogan way. And you know, bring in the the biophysical science, bring in what we know about politics and governance to date. And where we're left, though, isn't a place of total despair, I don't think. Well, I, I don't know how you all thought, <laughs> those of you who read it. <laughs> well, I think, I think generally we're an extremely pessimistic uh, bunch. But I mean, I think that is actually the challenge is to stare down how difficult it is and force yourself to come up with solutions for it. I mean, in general, a lot of my feelings on this subject and general critique of today's left is that there's curious caveats built in to avoid having to seriously think about these questions. And I guess a general latent technophobia or something like that. 
I mean, I get the the technophobia. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sympathetic to it, especially when it comes to like killer robots and all of that type of stuff, <laughs> right? But I also think that we can't really afford to dwell in that space. We have to command these technologies and, you know, the people, like not just the capitalists, not just, you know, Exxon. This stuff is way too important to be left in their hands. And so, frankly, I don't understand the rejection of something like carbon capture and storage on the grounds that, you know, it's going to be commercialized by Exxon. I mean, if you have something that can save your life, like, I don't know, I got a vaccine. It's not Mm. because I love Pfizer or think they're like (laughs) the best (laughs) company ever, right? But, you know. That's a good comparison, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we need to like, I mean, not just accept them on their terms, though. You know, if you're going to talk about vaccines, we should have been producing those with the state and getting rid of patents and stuff like that, too. But yeah, I mean, I think I think it's tempting to feel like there's a moral arc to the universe and that the people who made the problem shouldn't be the ones who are socially rewarded for cleaning it up. But that's what it is. I should emphasize just for clarity here that when I talk about technophobia, that initially what brought me into this social media research, this Gen Z radical politics uh, research, is that I noticed an enormous rise in anarcho-primitivism, in Luddism, in things that are questionably even part of left politics. And you see those things play out in a really dramatic way, especially when you're talking about young people who have hyperbolic contrarian politics anyway. That seemed to me to be an early signal that something is like deeply wrong, that someone who's age 14 or 15 could get into those type of politics and think that that was a better idea than, I don't know, doing like social democracy and a little bit of solar radiation management and things like that. So I like to take silly things seriously in this project. Maybe the thing that is most present in my mind thinking about the book, we're in a certain phase of historical development. We can't just crank back the clock to Fordism where we had strong points of material leverage. And we seem to be locked into this downwards trajectory. And we're looking for a certain escape vector, something that is intrinsic to the system, intrinsic to the process, that then you would front load as a political demand And this would allow you to create the transition necessary into the new society. And my feeling, having spent some time with the book and and thinking about questions that are especially present on the internet now, is that internationalism is increasingly brittle and difficult in the era of global capitalism. But to really do effective solar radiation management, geoengineering, what have you, it does need an international coordinated effort. And that this is potentially one of those vectors to revitalize an internationalist left wing. Am I, am I putting too much onto the text? Or do you think that is also, is that implied somewhere? You know, I think that's mostly the case. Except I'm not sure how much direct coordination solar geoengineering requires. I mean, what it requires is a few capable actors to take it up and the rest of the world to not say no, which is a different thing than everybody uh, getting together and cooperating on it. I mean, I think that the framework we have for, you know, the Paris Agreement and 
net zero targets where if, if it can work, that's, <laughs> that, that's probably as good as we're going to get when it comes to international negotiation. And who would be the capable actors in this scenario? Is that something that happens in the U.S.? Is it the global north broadly? or? I mean, there's a question of technical capability of mounting a solar geoengineering program, which I don't think is that high. I think that many nations can do that. But then, I mean, it has to be an actor that has enough credibility and goodwill that somebody wouldn't want to stop them. So it doesn't necessarily herald like a new <laughs> era of global <laughs> cooperation. Um, I think that the rest of the stuff that we have to do does. I mean, the, the rest of the decarbonization, especially transforming agriculture, those kinds of things. So, you know, with the logic that solar geoengineering could buy time for that. If you, if you buy that logic, <laughs> I do some mm -hmm. days and I don't others. <laughs> Well, this this kind of foils my my next question, because it was going to be something like a lot of the stuff that happens on the Internet, a lot of it can be dismissed. And then there are certain moments where it's extremely crucial. And one of those happens to be on the conspiratorial fringe that becomes accidentally in the process looking like they were right the whole time. Because I'm imagining if you were to have a political demand that was to spray aerosols in the stratosphere, there would be a frenzy of crazy chemtrail people who would immediately become very interested in this stuff. Have you had interactions with like wackadoo chemtrail people emailing you about the book? I, I imagine you must have. Not so many. Well, I think one thing that happened, and I don't have evidence of this, but I think that, you know, Google and YouTube etc. About a one year or two years ago changed their algorithms so that less chemtrail stuff comes up. Yeah. Because I, I periodically, you know, track these search terms and I've really changed I've seen the change happen. It used to be totally chemtrails all the time. But yeah, I, I interviewed um one time Dane Wigington of Geoengineering Watch, which is like one of the main Guys, you can read this interview on Medium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've we've I, listened to it in the uh, in the Discord. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah. I can also say that in, in the course of my research, there was significant changes made to the YouTube algorithm around or just before January of 2019. So that that does seem to line up. I mean, I'm super interested in what these people are experiencing because I think I think it speaks to you know, fear of the ecological crisis. And because we haven't given a language to talk about that in a legitimate mm -hmm. way, it just bubbles up in these strange permutations, whether it's 5G or, you know, whatever it is. It's, I think, at root, like this mourning, this ecological pain. I don't know. That was, yeah, I mean, that's, I'm skipping forward a little bit here, but that was going to be one of my later questions of um, what is bundled into this climate anxiety? Because I feel like, especially when I talk to young people, it's like the last thing that they mention in their list of grievances. So it's like, I don't have a future and like the country is falling apart and uh, the economy. And then uh, and then there's climate change. It's, it's kind of this thing that is tacked on to the end. And I feel like it becomes a placeholder for all of these other stresses that feel unsolvable and are wrapped in together. And so I, I'm just, I'm wondering if there's like a thought experiment, if we're in 2040 and 
magically wages and productivity align and people are less alienated in their lives, they're less socially atomized. What if the climate is falling apart around you, but you're not doing alienated labor? Is that a preferable situation? (laughs) I'm not sure that's a question. (laughs) (laughs) I think that with the chemtrails discourse and a lot of these others, it's like an anti-elite, you know, not having agency over your own life, watching these elites have agency. That's why Bill Gates is the focal point of every single conspiracy you can think of. Right, right. Like the ultimate symbol of... He's got a thing too, uh, Scope. Is that Scopex? Stratospheric Controlled Perturbation Experiment. I think he probably put some funding into that, but other funding came from, you know, David Keith's startup package at Harvard. I mean, he's not even the PI as far as I know. It's, you know, somebody else at at Harvard, Frank Koich. But yeah, I mean, that research group has had funding from Bill Gates and he's not the only, you know, tech billionaire that funds research into this. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I got got that headline (laughs) from like the chemtrail people. So uh, yeah, yeah, it makes it makes sense. I want to ask a question that I'm probably going to stumble through here. But one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about in the Discord is that we're all super interested in left-wing politics, and we're extremely frustrated by all of the many numerous hurdles in front of us. And it feels to me like there is an activist wing in left politics in general, but also in the environmental movement that is kind of fallen into the prefiguration spiral or something like that. They don't imagine a world in which their political ideas could be co-opted or defeated. They have like a dozen cooks in the kitchen for a Google Doc. Just broadly imagining a political program for a world in which other factions exist and wield power. I wanted to ask you, like, you know, imagine for a second that I'm a reactionary Trump voter and I live in the deindustrialized Midwest. How would you convince that person to get on board with solar radiation management or geoengineering in general? That's a, I mean, it's a pretty uncomfortable question because I wouldn't want to have to like convince anybody of that Mm -hmm. because I'm not sure it's a good idea. I mean, I, you know, if I, if it was talking about climate action, you know, I wouldn't talk about climate change. I talk about clean energy. I talk about new infrastructure. Those are things that people are on board with. But when it comes to solar geoengineering, I mean, people think that I've talked to in the middle of the country that are Trump voters, they think that's, you know, narcissistic hubris. It's, you know, the elites being crazy. Um, I mean, I can think of cynically ways to talk about it. You know, I'm surprised that people haven't talked more about how it's just relocating pollution from the troposphere to the stratosphere, because you could make that that pitch, right? Since aerosols in the air we breathe around here, they mask, you know, between half a degree and a degree of warming. So as we clean them up, um, there'll be more warming. So you can make this case, we'll just move them higher up so they'll stay for a longer amount of time and continue shielding us, but we won't die from respiratory diseases at the same rate that we do now. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's compelling health of themselves and their their families or something like that. I wasn't sure how you would answer it, but I was expecting maybe like there's an opportunity for creation of green jobs. The way that people try and sell the Green New Deal is like 
that would bring opportunity back to the areas that are uh, suffering from outsourcing or yeah i mean it's a tightrope there's also various solutions there may not be an answer for it and that you have to politically quarantine various of these competing factions you try and do what you can to undermine their influence that is also like an acceptable tactic i have a few amas by the way i am watching them let me try and go through a few of these other things here and then we'll get to the amas are we doing shell scenarios without the budget? <laughs> you mean right here in this conversation? <laughs> uh, I mean, in general, in general. I mean, like, I think when we first spoke, one of the questions I had was like, why is this a Verso book rather than something else? Because I have to imagine that there are all of these consulting firms and mega corporations that are, you know, quite seriously interested in these things, especially in a case where transformation of the climate results in disrupted supply chains that affect profits. It's almost an insurance policy. Shell scenarios are probabilistic and insurance-based and long-term. Is there someone else who has this plan that we should be competing with or watching, potentially? I mean, in terms of who's writing good decarbonization roadmaps, um, if you're in the U.S., I'd look at the Net Zero America study done by Princeton. It doesn't talk about SRM, but it talks about, you know, what sort of carbon sequestration we might have on land and carbon capture and storage potential, and it maps it out spatially. So there's more and more of these kind of spatially explicit, how do we do carbon removal analyses coming online. Um, also look at the CDR primer at cdrprimer.org that has kind of a global mapping. But for SRM, no, there's not too much that's, it's very underdeveloped as an idea co compared to the amount of talk or press it gets. Can I ask you about platform governance? Would you describe that term to people who are unfamiliar? I mean, for me, it, it entails both, you know, demands about how the platforms govern their own activity, but also demands about how the state governs platforms. You know, you can look at the the dust up of around Australia and Facebook as kind of mm. one of the initial volleys in that whole battle if governance is a battle. And it has, I mean, uh, I think I would even extend it to the questions of, you know, who designs platforms, who shapes them, whose idea are they even before they're implemented. For some reason, this like platform or technology category is impervious to political critique. And there's also such a long history between the new Democratic Party that emerges in the Clinton era and this new economy that comes out of California and Silicon Valley that the platforms are ideologically similar to a lot of these ideas. That's where a lot of the hope of the new economy was invested, especially in the example of Australia. One is tempted to think that there could be this kind of veneer of the positive reality that is broadcast on mainstream platforms while you are heading to work in your task rabbit dystopian future, trying to like navigate through extreme weather. And then you check Twitter or something and it's like everything's going according to plan and the stock market is booming and things are great rapidly devolving into cyberpunk dystopia. Can I pull a few of these AMAs here? I think this is kind of an interesting one from Eric. He's curious to know about your prepping style and how your prepping style evolved, whether it contributed to some of the content in this book. It seems like you're familiar with a lot of these subcultures. Is that right? 
Fairly, although my familiarity hasn't kept up. So, you know, um, I was, I mean, when I was in, you know, my late teens, early 20s, I was interested in, you know, the whole idea of dropping out, like, you know, just straight from the 60s counterculture stuff I was reading, or that a lot of people were reading in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And nowadays, you have kind of like also people on the right talking about exit as if that's a possibility. But I mean, I had to go through that journey, like of, you know, living in a van and staying on communes where people were growing their own food. And I was at this one commune in, in Wales and it was just so rainy and I was just weeding these onions in the rain and everybody was in a very bad mood. And I was like, I don't, this is not a better option. I mean, maybe everybody has something like that when in, in their early twenties, but, and then with climate change, like I, I stayed at this very beautiful um, commune in Spain, but there, there was a drought and, the, it was in this valley that was fed by the stream and the stream dried up and, you know, you, you need like a whole village to talk to, to maintain the, that the aqueduct system to get some more water. It's like, you need big societies to deal with the problems that we have. So um, I, I don't say I'm much of a prepper anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. It's tough, especially for people who are creative as well in that they have they feel a really close bond to their small circle of friends or, or what have you. And they try and extrapolate that into a political program or something, which results in like, say, for example, an artist colony in Maine, where we all have collective meals and there's 30 of us and we work a few hours a week on the farm or something like that. And you have, you know, a more productive, fulfilling life or, or whatever, but um, your penicillin still comes from a lab somewhere, you know? So my feeling is like, my feeling is like you can still have your friends in the democratic socialism that I imagine, but we still need some heavy industry and we need all of these things that like are not possible on the scale of like a tiny community. Just let that be your social life. Let that be your hobbies. I mean, I just think it's really important to understand that to do something about climate change, we're going to have to work with people we hate because you know, we don't have a mandate. We have this like mm. razor thin margin in the U.S. context. And the the politics of climate are going to be really different now because of our experience with the pandemic. You have a group of people who already thought that the government wanted to restrict everything they did. Now they have a year of lived experience that proves that actually these right. people with PhDs in power do to some, you know, degree want to do that. And so anything that we might've wanted like behavioral restrictions or, you know, emergency climate action powers that curtail certain things, a lot of that will be even less possible now. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's possible to underline enough how important that actually is. And I feel like doing this work, I'm just confronted with that reality every day of having to talk to people who think completely differently than I do. And it, it has really transformed the way that I think about a lot of these things when you realize that like, oh, I don't even share like the base level presuppositions with this person. It is really transformative. I guess that is my thorny contrarianism that I, I try and push into all of these conversations. You know, how is this going to work when it's not 
you, me, and a dozen of our friends that are all part of elite institutions in some way or another? Are these things scalable? One of the things that you mentioned in the book that has really stuck with me and has been mentioned in the reading group several times is that we're tempted to think of these future models as being uh, extremely pessimistic, that there's like a dozen bad to less bad or more bad options, but you're actually not really resigned to the bad version of the future. And what you make very clear is that as we approach the event horizon, the volatility increases, meaning that more things become possible, more capital is freed up. Grappling with that and then considering like how it could be steered and uh, made a political demand is something that's very, very interesting to me now. I had highlighted a quote about Kim Stanley Robinson. So you'll be familiar with this. As science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson writes, it may be easy to imagine a radically different society in that one merely expresses wishes and defines some version of justice, equality, and peace. That's all easy. What's hard is imagining any plausible way of getting from here to there. Robinson writes that perhaps when Marxist theorist Frederick Jameson talks about the future as being unimaginable, he doesn't mean that the future is an unimaginable destination. What's unimaginable is, quote, a history to a good future place. And I think that's what I've been left with recently, that the very transparent, very visible crisis at the center is actively shedding people to the fringe, that the current way of doing things has passed every critical threshold. And if this is not dealt with or strategized or reformulated in some way, I mean, there is a resurgent authoritarian nationalism across all of Europe, essentially, which may rear its head if we don't very quickly get our act together as you know, people on the left who are seriously considering these questions. Let's say, for example, there's a young man who messages me, and he is at risk for some really bad political ideas. He's trying to grapple with what declining rates of profit and post-Fordism and globalization mean. And his idea is that climate change means that he has to eat bugs and live in a pod. What do I tell that kid? I'm kind of at a loss for like what to tell him at this point, because it seems like there are, there's a level of personal sacrifice that is actually required. So how do I sell him on that without inadvertently making the argument that his economic interest is best represented by right-wing populism? I mean, the thing about personal sacrifice is that we shouldn't even be talking about that unless we've done the other things. So, so look at where emissions come from. There's about 6% of global greenhouse gas emissions that are just lost in fossil fuel production from like methane leaks, you know? Mm -hmm. Why are we talking about curbing people's flying when we haven't gone after these big industrial emitters if there's much fewer of them than there are, you know, humans that want to fly, right? So we need, we need a focused program that's saying, hey, look at these big wasteful corporations. They're not even doing, you know, a fraction of their part. I mean, the one thing people on the left and, and the right seem to agree about is reigning in big corporate power. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be, you know, a starting point. Um, and I think that, that we know what to do. It's not like this is some unsolvable problem. It's very clear, sector by sector, what needs to happen. So this backcasting exercise from, you know, looking at a good future in 2050 or 2100 and working out the steps back, like leagues of smart people have, have done that. 
right? So it's just, it's kind of frustrating to see us at this point when actually it's pretty clear what to do. What I generally tell those kids is that so long as one billionaire exists, I won't eat the bugs. I think that's a fair, <laughs> like I'll eat the bugs if I have to, if I absolutely have to, I will make any level of personal sacrifice because I mean, honestly, like my utopia is basically being trapped in a room and having all the free time to play video games. It's not that different from quarantine or whatever, but I would like to work a lot less in that version of the future. So I can deal with a relatively minimum level of material comfort. That's totally fine. I think especially for the kids that I talk to, it's more about the level of just degradation and, and like being humiliated when we know that there is such extravagance that is available by by the elites or, or things like this. It's a kind of resentment politics, uh, uh, definitely. One more from the AMA is, okay, I meant to get to this one earlier. This is also from Eric. He had wanted to ask, you said you were tracking chemtrail search volumes. He's curious what other topics you're monitoring. Are there other terms, to answer Eric's question, other terms that you are tracking that are relevant to the research? I mean, not related to that. The the thing I'm tracking now is people's interest in this idea of climate lockdowns and the Great Reset. Right. <laughs> I mean, for, right. for obvious reasons, mm. it's kind of intersects my work. What is the release date on the new book you're working on? Um, that should be out in October. October, okay. Yeah, thank you for, for making the time to chat and to come on the stream. Say uh, thanks yeah. to Holly, everybody in the chat. Okay, great. And we'll be, we'll be in touch soon. Yeah, thank you. And um, email me anytime if you guys have questions or whatever. <laughs> great, great. Thank you, Holly. I appreciate it. There is someone watching.